session three, reform theology. Now, I don't know, um, help, help me out a little bit. How many of you have uh, Presbyterian backgrounds? As I'm, this is the first time I've been in the class. They always give me the hard stuff. So I've got, help me out if you've been, have any kind of a Presbyterian background. Okay, okay, great. How many, how many of you don't come from any kind of Presbyterian background? Okay, I'm going to keep my hand up too. I don't either. Uh, I, I was uh, uh, reared in a home where the Bible was important. Um, and the Bible was um, central in, in our lives for, for much of our uh, young lives. But I grew up in a, an independent Bible church. And and that was if anybody if any of you have been under teaching that's that's dispensational. I got um, uh, dispensational teaching growing up. And uh, the year that I was born, I was born in Dallas. The year that I was born, we moved to uh, Chicago, and my dad was a professor at Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College for a number of years. And, and, uh, which was a, a great experience, but through, through a number of, for, for a number of reasons, I needed, like all of us, to, in a sense, make my faith my own. You know, there's only so long that you can live off your parents' <laughs> faith and, and what they taught you. And I had a wonderful upbringing. Um, but as I started wrestling, um, with with what I believe the the Bible to say, I can't, I went a little different direction than than my dad. Um, we had some great discussions. Dad did have a, a PhD in in theology, and he was very accepting of my. Uh, we talked about you, you talked about what evangelicals are last week. Um, dad was a strong evangelical, but I um, went in a little bit different direction, and part of that can be blamed. This is, this is, I'm not going to, I'm just a little background because I haven't been, been able to be around you uh, that much, but this can be blamed on, of all places, the University of Texas, that bastion of conservative reform theology. Now, I'm just joking, (laughs) just joking, but I was a a history major and I went to uh, the University of of Texas and I started studying history and I was, I was for a number of reasons and one of those reasons was there was some some trouble, um, not that a family would ever have trouble, but my my family there was some some struggles within the context of my family, even though we did the Bible was very important to us. And when I went off to school, I had to rethink my faith. You know, is this do I really believe this or not? Is this really important or not? And I ended up um, majoring in history and, and studying people like uh, Martin Luther and and John Calvin. And, uh, and and these other other men and what um, what impressed me most and I hope you you're, you you might be there you might not be there I hope you'll get there is is you will find that the the theology of the Protestant Reformation first of all is is rooted in the Bible a very 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 high view of God's word and. It takes God's word. Now, I know, I understand a lot of different churches say this, but, but in, in, again, in my experience, and I think other people would say the same thing, it takes the whole Bible seriously, whether it's a book like Ecclesiastes or Habakkuk or Mark or Revelation. 
the whole Bible, the message of the whole Bible is important. And we need to constantly be holding our hands out. Lord, what is it you want me to know? What is it you want me to hear? What is it you want me to receive? Even if I might not like it. <laughs> but you know, you love me and you know what's best for me. And you are sovereign. And so please teach me and uh, that again, that's just a little bit of a, a, a background. I find a very high view of Scripture, being being serious about the whole Bible, not just particular parts of the whole Bible, the whole Bible, and how the whole Bible fits together. And I'd never been around such honesty. I remember some somebody saying years ago, um, and we we would know this, but but the Bible is certainly true. It's certainly God's word, but it's the most honest book ever written. It's the most honest book about me. It's the most honest book about you. It's the most honest book about God. The Bible tells it like it is. And we'll talk about a couple of passages today that um, um, are, it can be hard. We'll talk about the P word today, predestination. Uh, a word that is, that is uh, a doctrine, a truth that is hard. Uh, for many people, that's why we, we go round and round and round about it through the years and people want to know, oh yeah, you're, as soon as somebody finds out, I hate it, as soon as somebody finds out, oh you're a Presbyterian minister, you believe in predestination. Well I do, but there's a lot of other things uh, that, I, that I believe too. Well, let's start with a basic. What does the word theology mean? Reformed theology. The, the study of God, that makes it very... Um, very simple, um, theos, logos, the study of God. And where do we get the word Protestant? Protestant, the word Protestant, when we say Protestant Reformation, the word Protestant comes from the word protest. There is a, what's the protest all about? It was a protest primarily, again, this is back in the 16th century, it was a protest primarily against Roman Catholic teachings that had developed in the Middle Ages. So that was the initial protest. Now, remember, this is something really interesting. These, these, these first-generation reformers, these men, these great names that you've heard, Martin Luther and John Calvin, you realize all these guys started out as Catholics. They all started out as Roman Catholics. Some of them were Roman Catholic monks, and and most of them started out in this in this background, um, but they as they they went back to the Bible, they saw something very different. You can see um, where it says historical background. Reformed is is a term that emerges from the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was a reclaiming of the centrality of the Scriptures and therefore the Gospel of Grace. Essentially, you can sum it up this way: We are children of the Protestant Reformation. Every Protestant is and the protestant reformation was essentially a back to the bible movement it was essentially a back to the bible movement go back to the bible what does the bible say what does the bible teach martin luther uh, again sort of the the, the first uh, magisterial reformer we call him the father of the reformation um, you, maybe you've heard of the 95 theses that he nailed to the, to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517 saying, look, I, I want to, basically what, what he, Martin Luther is doing is, look, I have some trouble with these basic doctrines and I want to discuss these, these issues. And so Luther begins questioning Roman Catholic teaching. He translates the Bible. 
Remember, it's a back-to-the-Bible movement. He translates the Bible into the common language of the people, and he he rediscovers, in a sense, and by the way, the church didn't disappear for a thousand years between 500 and 1500. It was there, but it was moving constantly away, slowly away from the Bible. And Luther found himself going back to the Bible, translating it, and wrestling with one central question. How is it that I'm supposed to have a relationship with God? The most basic question that people ask. How is it? I'm an Augustinian monk, and I just, and I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm making every effort. I'm climbing every ladder. I'm obeying every rule. But I'm still empty. And what Luther came to to rediscover, in a sense, is a word that we that we don't often hear, but we need to know what it is, justification, essentially salvation. Um, Luther would eventually say that the, 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 the justification or a basic understanding of what salvation is, is central to Christianity, central to the Reformation, central to Reformed theology. And we can summarize his conclusions this way, that justification, or you could say, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Martin Luther, like many today and many throughout time, thought that God expects perfection of me. God expects me to be perfectly obedient. I've got to somehow earn my relationship with with him. Um, You remember uh, Sound of Music, where she's up on the mountain? singing and swaying somewhere in my youth or childhood. And she's singing, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You know, that, that whole kind of thing that we, we um, often come to, to, to God with, I've got to somehow earn it. But, but Luther came to recognize that the Bible teaches that we are justified, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is by grace alone, it's God's action, it's not ours, it's free. By faith alone or through faith alone, uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And again, this is revolutionary for the time. It's revolutionary for our time. I am saved, I'm justified, I'm made right with God because of God's free grace received by the empty hand of faith. It's a free gift that I receive with an empty hand in Christ alone. I'm trusting in every Christ's perfect obedience and Christ's perfect sacrifice for me. I'm looking to him and him alone for my salvation. I'm not trying to earn it. Grace alone, faith alone. Christ alone, and you can see several uh, passages that I've listed there. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, there's uh, There's no earning. Now, this message that began in Germany spread out through Europe It came over to Britain and changed Britain and eventually came over to the United States uh, of America and in in many ways changed the world. Now, Reformed theology is often sometimes called Calvinism. Um, um, 
And you, you, maybe you have, have heard along the way that John Knox studied under John Calvin in Geneva, and John Knox is the father of the Presbyterian Church, which began in Scotland. Now, what you, what you may not know is Reformed theology played a significant role in the, the first Europeans, in the lives of the first Europeans that came to America. Um, does anybody know that the first college, for example, that was established in the United States of America was what? Shortly after, but yes, Harvard, 1636. But before many of the Puritans even had a house to live in, they, they built this place and they called it Harvard. There's a man named John Harvard financed it. And this is going to be a place to train men primarily, and it's going to be train, train them primarily for the, the ministry. Do you know what the original motto of Harvard was? Veritas pro Christo et ecclesia, truth for Christ and the church. It's fascinating. Truth, veritas pro Christo et ecclesia, truth for Christ and the church. We have to, first of all, make sure that we are training men to train, we're training pastors. That is essential to our community. They started coming over in the early 1600s and they established Harvard. What's the motto of Harvard now? Veritas, truth, no Christ, no church. But virtually all of the, the first colleges, the first institutions of, of learning, of training in the United States, they were all reformed. They, they all followed the, the biblical teaching of reformed theology. Another interesting one is, is um, the, the, the pilgrims and Puritans, they were very similar. The, the pilgrims came in 1620, the Puritans came in 1630, but they had many very similar ideas. And you know this thing about Thanksgiving. You know, every year, Thanksgiving, we have this national holiday now, and, and we look back to these people in funny hats and funny shoes and funny clothes. Um, why did they do that? Why did they have a Thanksgiving other than, uh, I'll say, you know, other than just thanking God and appreciating all that he had done for them and getting, getting them through the winter and providing them, there's another reason. Anybody? Sure. Sure. The Bible teaches in all things give thanks. I, 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 I look forward to saying this to, to anybody that I that I can, and please think about this when you think about Thanksgiving. For the pilgrims and the Indians and those early settlers who were reformed in America, that was not their first Thanksgiving. They had set aside days of Thanksgiving when they were in Britain and when they were in Holland. It was nothing new to them. It was something new to, to us to hear. Why? They were absolutely steeped primarily, certainly in the Bible, but in the Psalms. They loved the Psalms. And the Psalms became central to their worship, to their singing, to their devotions, to their personal growth. And they established regular days. Be tough to do that now, but they established regular days for the entire community to set aside, to thank God, to praise, not to ask God for stuff, but the whole day, this whole day, they would set aside these days on a regular basis to just lift up praise and thanksgiving to God. Later, yes. It later became a national holiday. And I don't think 
it be didn't become a national holiday until I think the 20th century, but a regular practice. So that comes out of, um, again, reformed, a reformed background. So it's deep sort of in the DNA of the United States and our very founding from the very beginning, although it's changed in, in, in many ways. So that's a little historical background. Um, you can see a little paragraph there on, on uh, Reformed Doctrine. Again, it's the 16th century. Back to the Bible. It's all about getting back to the Bible. And then, if you've never been exposed to the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, all of these things are, are, are teaching tools, essentially, and you'll come across those in Reformed churches, and they're wonderful. They, they're not on the same level as the Bible, but they're wonderful, whether it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, or the Children's Catechism, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the Heidelberg Catechism. All of these teaching tools came out of the Reformation, and that's what they were. They're not on the same level as the Bible, but they were teaching tools, instruction tools, and we have many of those still, and they're um, very helpful uh, as, as we continue to want to learn and grow. Okay, the, the basics. Um, you might have heard Wilson say something like this uh, in the early service, but in, in one, we, we're not going to talk a lot about worship uh, today, but one of the ways we can summarize our beliefs about worship is read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible. In other words, the Bible is central to everything we do. We preach through the Bible, we sing songs and hymns that are steeped in, in biblical uh, emphases and, and themes. And when we pray, we want to pray in response um, to the Bible, and, and, and we want to be just absolutely saturated in the Bible. And you realize that, that right at the heart of our Bible, right, at the, right in the middle of our Bible, we have 150 um, prayers, uh, psalms, that we often use to call one another to worship, and we often use to sing. Um, but again, the Bible being central to our worship. Now, there are a number of ways to... to summarize Reformed theology, and we're going to use what we call the, the five solas. Maybe you've heard, anybody ever heard of the five points of Calvinism? or read? Um, just, just an opinion. The five points are ne- not necessarily the, the best um, summary. I think the, uh, the, these solas or these alones are the best summary in sort of a concise way that we can get at when we look at Reformed theology. Scripture, sola scriptura, scripture alone, um, God's revelation to us, his letter to us, his truth to us is communicated through his word, through the Bible, every word um, of the Bible. We, we understand salvation, we understand life, we understand the church, through the Bible alone. We trust it and we trust the Holy Spirit coming and teaching through it. Uh, grace alone, uh, there it is again. You hear the word grace a lot at, at Highlands. And and um, sometimes as Southerners, we can think grace means nice. <laughs> it, it's so much more than more than nice. It's how we're rescued. It's how we're saved. It's how we're delivered. Uh, from our sin, rescued from God's wrath by his grace alone. Salvation is not a human work. Faith itself 
is is a gift uh, of the Holy Spirit. So scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, there it is again. Um, We receive all these wonderful benefits of Christ that he won for us on the cross with empty outstretched hands of faith. We receive them by faith. We accept them by faith. We accept them uh, through trust. And then uh, you, you may notice uh, when we do communion, we, we, we will, when we fence the table, so to speak, and we talk to people about what communion is, uh, we'll say something like, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, don't come. And that's based upon, again, the scriptures, but this, again, Christ, Christ alone. Christ is the only way. Um, Christ is the way, truth, and life, and it's only through him that we're reconciled to the Father and then to God alone be glory. Uh, we want to be, be glorifying him and thanking him always for what, for what he has done for us, for his grace uh, for us. And then you can see distinctives. One of the distinctives of Reformed theology is the sovereignty of God. God never says, whoops, didn't see that coming. Um, God is never surprised. He's never taken aback. Um, he is sovereign. And everything in, in, in some sense that happens, happens because of his will. Um, the, the shorter catechism, what are the decrees of God listed here? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now that is loaded, I know. And that brings up all kinds of questions, and we'll talk about that in, in just a minute. But God, God is, is big. Um, God gets bigger and bigger and bigger uh, the more you steep yourself in the Bible and the more... You know, I often illustrate this using a, a, a children's story. If any of you have read the, the Chronicles of Narnia... Um, uh, one of the little girls in, in Narnia gets lost. And if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, the story, story of these children and this great big lion who, who represents uh, Christ in the story for, for children. And one of these little girls has been lost. She's been struggling. Um, and then she starts to, to turn and grow. And, but she hasn't seen Aslan for a long time. And uh, suddenly she sees him in the distance and comes up close to him is just this little girl and this lion is just huge (laughs) and she hasn't seen him in a while she looks up at him and said as aslan you're you're bigger and she's grown a little bit older and she's been through hard things she says aslan you're bigger and he looks down at her and gently and softly says um i'm not bigger but every year you grow you'll see me bigger the point being that that God is sovereign, God is God is big, and then the um, the doctrines of of grace. And let's look at one passage in particular, um, Ephesians one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
And here's the P word. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What is that saying? <laughs> okay, that, that God has an eternal plan for our salvation from the very beginning. Anything else you notice in the, the passage? Yeah. Let me let me point this out. That it's essential. You know this this doctrine of of God's sovereignty and election and predestination. Please don't ever separate it from love and adoption. Look what this says. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Predestination in the Bible. And this is the answer for so many. Predestination in the Bible is always offered, or or God's sovereignty in the Bible is offered to people who are often and usually overwhelmed and discouraged and need to be encouraged and blessed and comforted. It is never in the Bible, look for it, it is never in the Bible where, never in the Bible does somebody come and say, well, you know, I'd love to tell you about the gospel, but you're not predestined, so I'm not going to bother with you. Um, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus, but I don't think there's any hope for you, because God has not chosen you, so I'm not going to tell you. That's not it. Occasionally, just occasionally in the Bible, as you read through the Bible, you'll see the veil pulled back. Just every once in a while, you'll see the veil pulled back and you'll look into these great mysteries of God. And we can't completely understand them, but the veil gets closed back fairly quickly. Um, But occasionally the veil is pulled back a a, a little bit and we're given something like this. And I, I will... Sometimes say that, you know, predestination essentially is, is the love you've, you've always wanted. It, it is, you don't have to earn it. It's unconditional. You can't lose it. It lasts forever. And it, it comes from a, from a sovereign God. So please remember that don't separate people. We'll talk about, you know, you, you, Here's the question that, that you might get. Well, wait a minute. If some people are predestined and some people aren't, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? <laughs> well, yeah, they have. Their, all people are made in the image of God, and they have the law written on our hearts. But if you have a personal... Let's make this real personal and relational. If you have somebody come up to you and say, you know, I don't like predestination. I might not have any hope. You know, God is big and he's sovereign. And I might not have any, so I might not have a chance. I might not have any hope. Here's your response. Well, let me ask you, how do you respond to a person like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amen. 
Amen. Look, we're taught, when we're talking about predestination and election and before the foundation of the earth, we're having the veil pulled back and we're looking behind the veil for a short time, but these are great, great mysteries. What our call to do is, what we are called to do is tell people about Jesus. You know, if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, um, what if I'm not predestined? You can honestly look at somebody like that and say, if you'll kneel with me and, and pray to Jesus Christ to come into your heart and change your life, he'll do it right now. You ready? He will accept you. If you run to him and trust in him alone for your salvation, he will come into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit and everything will change. You know, our job is not to know um, all of the great mysteries uh, of God, but to be encouraged that once God grabs us and changes us and makes us his child, he will never let us go. He will never leave us or forsake us. You know, there was a... Um, some of you may know Ben, ben Sigler. Ben Sigler was walking around. I should have brought it with me. He was walking around the third floor today, Ben Sigler, handing out name tags. I don't know where he got this idea. He's a, he's a kid. And he made these name tags, <laughs> and he was handing them out to everybody in the hall. I am a child of God. And he was giving them out to adults and kids and anybody that would come by. I am, I am a child of God. And, and people were sticking them on their, um, their lapels. So... Predestination originally communicated to suffering Christians for their encouragement. And the point is to be encouraged, to be, in ble- to be blessed. We don't, our call is not to know who's elect, who's, who's predestined. But um, on the other hand, we are also called, you can see number three, see where it says cultural mandate. Um, even though God is sovereign in our justification and sanctification, we are responsible to use our gifts for his glory. And then in Philippians 2, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. What's going on there? That's just a wonderful, wonderful passage. And that gets really to the heart of of Reformed theology. God is sovereign. He's in charge. We're responsible. Both of those things are true. There's a certain mystery to that, but you find that on every page of the Bible. God is sovereign. He is in charge. He loves you now. You know, look at all Paul's letters. Paul starts out the first half of every one of his letters. Here's the who, now here's the do. Here's the who, here's the do. Here, know who you are. If you know who you are and know the grace that you have received and know that God will never leave you or forsake you, now, go live for him. Use your gifts for his glory. Go embody all this truth and live uh, all of this truth. Uh, seek, you know, I was watching again. I don't know if you've ever read. Um, here's an example, specific example. Um, anybody know who William Wilberforce is? Um, read, find out about William Wilberforce or watch the movie. Um, um, wow, I, I watched the movie just again last night. And this is about a man in the 18th century who who was... Um, very influenced by, by John Newton, who wrote, who was a former slave trader and wrote Amazing Grace, and he served in Parliament um, 
in, uh, in England, and he dedicated his life, almost his entire adult life, to the abolition of the slave trade. He knew God was, he had learned about God's amazing grace in his life. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that he was chosen. He'd experienced God's love and free love, mercy and grace. And he turned around and said, I I need to be faithful in my particular calling where I am. And he dedicated his life to the abolition of the slave trade. And it took him years and years and years and years. But eventually his bill was passed and the the slave trade in in Britain was was abolished. So we don't just um, sit and, and wonder... Uh, but we are we we move from from our understanding of God's grace to living for Him. Now, covenant theology—you'll hear more about covenant theology next week. Let me ask you one question: How were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved, come into relationship with God in the Old Testament? This is sort of an introduction to to next week by faith. Look at Hebrews 11 and 12 and all that roll call of those faithful people. Sometimes people, another distinctive about Reformed theology is the first promise of the gospel. Where's the very first promise of the coming of Jesus Christ? Genesis 3.15, the very first, in the same passage, the same chapter where Adam and Eve rebel against God, shake the fist of God, we want to be gods, we want to be the same chapter when the, the, the fall happens, this catastrophic fall into sin, God turns right around and promises the coming of Jesus Christ, the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 and then that works out through the rest of the Bible from Genesis uh, Genesis 3.15 on people are saved, now it it, it sort of progresses and the Bible sort of flowers and opens as it, as it goes along. But they are looking forward throughout the Old Testament to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of the King. And they're looking forward in faith. So even those in the Old Testament are, are looking forward in, in faith. Well, conclusion... Um, again, we're sort of skimming. There's a lot here I recognize, but one of the challenges is I hope you will, um, this, this is just a wonderful way to understand the Bible, God's teaching in the Bible. You see the, the conclusion, the sovereignty of God, the free grace of God, the calling of God to influence every area of life for the kingdom. Now, if you're wrestling with some of these things, you do not have to believe every aspect of, of, of the five points of Calvinism or all the solas to, to join Highlands. You just have to know Christ. You just have to know Jesus Christ and be converted. Now, you do if you're an officer, an elder, a deacon, and then there's some, uh, a list there for further reading if you are, are interested in... in and the bottom one especially, I don't know whether Lee or anybody has mentioned this to you, but Presbyterian and Reformed Books, what that website there, prpbooks.com, if you, any of you are interested in, there's something like 40 <laughs> little pamphlets. They're very, very thin, and they're not very expensive, and they, will, they, they deal with virtually every question that you would, you would possibly have as you grow in your faith. They're, they're very... Helpful, and there are a number number of good books. I'm sure some of you are aware of them that would be available uh, to you uh, going from here.
Yeah, well, you could really say you could really say the cultural mandate was given to Adam and, Adam and Eve in the garden. God creates; He creates a garden. He makes them male and female. He places them in the garden, and He says, "You know, create, work, cultivate after my after my image." Really, from the very beginning. So, so that challenge to obey Me and to work and to use your gifts happened even before the, the fall. Here's the great challenge of predestination. It, 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 let me bring up this word again. When you talk about mystery, when you talk about predestination, you're talking about, um, well, for instance, the Apostle Paul answered a question kind of like that. People in Romans 9 said, you know, what, I don't really understand this and, and I, I can't. And Paul's response in Romans 9 was, look, he's the potter, you're the clay. He's the potter. You're the clay. <laughs> he's the pot. He's God. You're not. And there are some things that are great mysteries. But we do know in the Bible that nothing surprises God. God is completely sovereign. But then we have these great, great mysteries. Let me, let me say this. On almost every page of the Bible, you have God who's sovereign, God who's gracious, and then mankind who's supposed to go do something, you know, supposed to go live and supposed to be uh, uh, obedient and all that. You have this constant, God is sovereign, human beings are responsible. God is sovereign, human beings. And the Bible never resolves it. You know, why, why do people have these <laughs> uh, back and forth? The Bible never resolves it. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, it's never, the Bible doesn't give us watertight arguments. It gives us a watertight person. Jesus Christ. And and the reality is anybody who repents and runs to him and trusts him uh, in faith alone will be saved. That is the promise of the Bible. But at the same time, God is in charge of everything. Nothing surprises him. Everything works according to his plan. Now, how does all that work out? I have no idea. There's a certain mystery to it. But that's... For, to my mind, that's a high view. That's not ignorance. That's a high view of the Bible. And and sometimes when we have this this sense of, you know, that's not fair. You know, you you hear that. But in, but in reality, you remember what was the promise to Adam and Eve when when they disobeyed? What what was the consequence? Death. Death. That's what's fair. And it can't it can't be. You know, all of this points back to back to Jesus Christ. You know, look what happened to Jesus Christ. All of these mysteries point to him. And it certainly can't be that God is capricious or unfair to us or doesn't love us or care about us. Look what his own son did for us. And and look what Jesus some people forget remember the remember the cross but forget about the garden. Remember what happened in the garden? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus was struggling so much with this. He was sweating blood and saying, is there any way I can get out of this? I don't know if I can bear the sins of the world. But, but he did. But um, I'll stay around for a few minutes. And predestination is a mystery. It's meant to encourage. But we don't, you know, we're not God and we just don't know all those things. But to deny predestination, to say, you know, well, that just can't be true. The Bible teaches it. The, the Bible Teaches it, but it's always associated with family and love and adoption and being a children of God, a child of God. Hmm. 
his yeah, it's his people, whether they be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's, it's his people, God's people. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, you know where I work. If you want to call me or, or talk anybody, I will often get people, well, I'm going to follow up on something. That'd be great. Let's pray. Lord, we have uh, uh, just skimmed uh, the wonders of your sovereignty and your mercy and grace. We thank you for... Um, <laughs> for your great salvation to undeserving sinners. We recognize that you are sovereign, you are in control, nothing surprises you, you're working out your plan, and you've made us part of that plan as your children, as your family, as your body, as the church. And yes, there are many things, Lord, there are many things that we just, um, we just don't know that are, that are great mysteries. And when we reach those mysteries, Lord, help us to kneel and, and, and pray and praise. And, and thank you that, that you uh, sent your son to live in our place, to die in our place because of love. And help us to love because you first loved us. And we pray that all of these conversations and, and discussions would always come full circle to the cross. Would always come back to Jesus. Would always come back to, well, what does Jesus have to do with all this? And, and what did he do for us? His death in our place, conquering our greatest enemies. We pray that we would love him more every day. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.